Hello, I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, coming to you from my office in West Ride here in Sydney, where each week I try to think about what it means to live out the truth of Christ crucified in every aspect of our lives and in our ministries. And after last week's post about the worthless cockroach, I've been thinking quite a bit this week about goodness and about evil and about the problems that they both represent. I mean, the problem of evil is something we're pretty familiar with. He's a familiar character. He pops up and asks accusing questions when something terrible happens. How can you believe in a so-called good and powerful God, says the problem of evil, when something like this happens? And this could be a global pandemic, or it could be a child with cancer, or it could be the unjust, senseless death of someone like George Floyd. Sometimes the problem of evil expresses himself in a kind of smug way, a kind of self-satisfied way, as if he is the clever and righteous person for having noticed that there's all this evil everywhere and that it's horrible, whereas Christians are somehow dumb or monstrous for perpetuating the idea that there is a good creator God in the midst of all this evil. And Exhibit A in this respect, I think, is Stephen Fry, one of my favourite comedians, but also somebody who Julie Birchall once described, and I thought this was cruel but fair, as a stupid person's idea of a clever person. Anyway, Stephen Fry once famously got stuck into God and Christians because of all the evil in the world. God, he says, is a capricious, mean-minded, stupid deity for having created a world that has so much injustice and strife in it, like children with bone cancer. Fry says, It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, that is, that God is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, and more worth living, in my opinion. Now, what Stephen Fry and most other mouthpieces for the problem of evil don't seem to realise is that Whenever the problem of evil comes trip-trapping over the bridge, his bigger and much more difficult brother, the problem of goodness, is not far behind. And the problem of goodness isn't one that we think about all that often. In fact, in some ways, that's what my post last week, the Worthless Cockroach post, was about. The fact that even as Christians, we sometimes struggle with the idea of goodness in our world or within ourselves. But goodness is even more of a problem from the modern God-banishing world, of which Stephen Fry is one particularly gifted and articulate example. You see, evil can only be said to exist, and so be a problem, if it describes the absence or destruction of some good. I mean, that's what evil is. Evil is when a good thing is destroyed or nullified or in some way overturned. Evil doesn't have any existence in itself. It's the absence of something. It's the destruction or denial of something, of something good. And so when George Floyd is cruel, cruelly and senselessly killed, it's evil, and surely it is evil, because Floyd's continued life, his ability to live and flourish as a human person, is something really good something that should not have been cut off and killed. 
and that should not is very important. It demonstrates that, that we and all the protesters who are outraged, and they're certainly entitled to be, that we know something is true, that the goodness of George Floyd being allowed to live is something real, and it imposes an obligation on the people around him, including the policemen who arrested him. But if that goodness in people is real, if there are people and things in the world that are genuinely good and that therefore should not be destroyed or overturned or denied, well, that presents a huge problem for Stephen Fry and for every modern God-banishing person. The English ethicist, an ethicist is a very hard word to say, the English ethicist Oliver O'Donovan puts his finger on this problem when he observes in his typically wry and insightful fashion that whenever anybody starts to think about morality and goodness and evil, they find themselves pretty quickly at a crossroads. They find themselves having to confront a momentous question that must be answered yes or no. And that question is, is moral goodness and evil an objective thing that exists in the world or not? You see, when we sense that something is good or evil, and when we experience that in our lives, when we experience some of the moral order of the world by noticing that something is evil or bad, or by relishing something that's good, are we perceiving something that is real, that is, that is out there beyond ourselves, even if we don't always perfectly grasp it? Are we experiencing something that is beyond, ourse beyond ourselves objectively, or are we just projecting a set of personal preferences or feelings onto the blank screen of the world and calling those feelings goodness and evil. Which is it? Is there really something good out there that we're experiencing and finding out about in some way? Or is there just stuff in the world that we choose to label in various ways as people? Now, if we say the latter, that there is no objective goodness or reality in the world, to moral order, then we find ourselves pretty quickly in a very difficult spot. We find ourselves on a path to nihilism and amorality and despair because there is no objective good thing that we can rejoice in together, nor any evil thing that we can protest together. There are really only my sensations and preferences and feelings, which I've chosen to arbitrarily label as good or evil. But if someone wants to answer that moral goodness and evil really does have an existence beyond our perceptions and thoughts, that it is actually there and is worth discovering or having or arguing about, then O'Donovan says that person has stepped despite himself onto theological ground. And this is the problem of goodness. If it doesn't exist, then neither does evil, and our outrage against injustice or suffering is its just a vacuous tantrum. But if goodness does actually exist, the question, of course, is where on earth did it come from? How did it get there? How did it get there if not from the hand of a creator, a good creator, who made the world to be a certain way? And if you banish that creator, then you've also banished the possibility of anything being actually, really, objectively good and worth having. 
And so the third and biggest billy goat gruff comes trapping across the bridge. The problem of evil is followed by its elder brother, the problem of goodness. And that's inevitably followed by the biggest brother of all, the doctrine of the good creator. And this, in many ways, is what Oliver O'Donovan, for those of you who've read his work, has been going on about uh, for decades. O'Donovan's work is dense, it's difficult to read, but really he's been worrying away at this simple truth for much of his academic life. It's that the world we inhabit really does have a moral order to it, a good though fallen order, an order of kinds of things and of purposes of things woven into its fabric and into its history by its creator, that that moral order is misunderstood and misconstrued by humanity, by a sinful rejection of the creator. And it's a fallen and sinful order that Christ has come to fulfill and redeem and renew in the new creation by his death and resurrection. And that if you deny the reality of this good created order that God made and has redeemed and will recreate, then nothing much makes any sense, not just in terms of morality in the world, but certainly in terms of the gospel and any hope for mankind. All of which brings me via George Floyd, Stephen Fry and Oliver O'Donovan, which are three names I don't think anyone has ever put in the same sentence in the history of the world. It brings me, of course, to Two Ways to Live, which is the main writing project I'm currently working on during the week, a fairly thorough review and revision of of not only the two ways to live outline of the gospel, but of all the resources that flow from it. And as I've been working on this, this two ways to live project, I've been struck afresh in recent weeks by just how important it is to anchor the gospel in the doctrine of creation as two ways to live does. Because what the death and resurrection of Christ means and what it achieves really rests on the goodness of God, the creator in his loving good creation of us and of all the world, on our sinful rebellion against this whole reality, against him as the good creator and Lord of all, and on all the consequences that follow from that under God's judgment, not only for us, but for the whole creation. The gospel really rests on this foundation and only makes sense on this foundation. In some of the circles I move in, Two Ways to Live is probably not flavour of the month at the moment, and in one sense that's fine. Gospel resources come and go, everything has a shelf life. But the reason that I'm keen to refresh and relaunch Two Ways to Live and see it used widely is that it does something that no other gospel outline or approach that I know of does successfully. And that is, it starts with and it anchors its presentation of the gospel in a doctrine of creation that explains the goodness and evil of us and of the world. And in so doing explains why the death and resurrection of Jesus is such good news. The gospel is really good news because it's founded on the idea that the world was created good by a good God. And that in his purposes, the world in all its sinfulness and evil and brokenness will be redeemed and renewed through the death and resurrection of his son, of the Christ. The goodness of God in the gospel 
is his answer to the problem of goodness and the problem of evil in our world. Those are my thoughts for this week, and you can probably expect more in the coming weeks and months about two ways to live. Working on it is forcing me to do a lot of fresh thinking and rethinking about the nature of the gospel itself and how we proclaim it, which is always a contested question. It's certainly been contested recently. I've read some articles that have been debating whether the kingship and lordship of Jesus should be the focus of the gospel or the atoning sacrifice of Jesus should be the focus of the gospel. It seems to me that both things are included in the proclamation of Jesus as Lord and Christ who saves and redeems us. But how they fit together and how they're proclaimed most clearly and compellingly, well, that's a question. And I'm continuing to think about that. I'm also thinking about the kind of equipping and training that Christians need in the gospel and what would be most useful uh, to produce to help them do that. So expect more stuff about Two Ways to Live uh, in these pages, in these notes uh, in the coming times. Also, as another little PPS, I mentioned last week that soon I'll be launching a paid version of The Painful Truth in the coming weeks. You don't have to worry about this just yet, but when the time comes, and I'll be announcing uh, the launch date for this very soon, you'll need to choose whether to become what I'm calling a paying partner of The Painful Truth or whether you just want to stay on the free list. Uh, paying partners or members will get this journal or podcast every week as both a text and a podcast audio journal, up to you whether you want to listen or read. And they'll also get some painful extras uh, as I go along, interviews I'm doing with people, uh, extra articles and material that I'm generating, and excerpts from some of the work that I'm writing, some of the bigger projects that I'm working on. And they will have the joy, and I'm only being a little bit ironic when I say this, they'll have the joy of being able to generously support my broader work as a writer and as a ministry trainer at the University of New South Wales. And so paying partnership will be coming along soon. Um, and I'm thinking that perhaps the perfect Christian number for this kind of paid subscription would be $7 a month or $70 a year. But I'll confirm that in the next week or so. And of course, if you're not up for being a paying partner, if that's not really your interest or priority at the moment, that's totally fine. You're very welcome to stay on the free list for The Painful Truth. And free subscribers will continue to get uh, the free public posts that I'll put out every three weeks or so. Uh, that means you'll get The Painful Truth sort of one in three. Every third one or thereabouts will be a free one for everybody and the rest will just be for the partners. But I'll say a little bit more about this next week when I announce the launch date. Well, that's about all for this week. Uh, thanks for being here and for listening. If you have any feedback, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can go to the website and leave a comment on the, uh, on the comment pages there under each post. Or if you're part of the newsletter um, list, or you're receiving that newsletter regularly as a subscriber, you can just hit reply and email me and I'll get that email and I respond to every one that people send in. So don't hesitate to get in touch, either to make a comment uh, on one of these posts or to pose some questions that you'd like me to address in future editions of The Painful Truth. Thanks for being with me this time around. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.